You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Why don't you guys have a seat? Uh, man, you know, Mike said earlier this morning uh, when we had our, our prayer time together uh, with the worship team uh, before the first service, he said that he had not realized until just then that it had been 12 weeks since I'd last preached and that 12 weeks was too long for him to go without a break. Uh, and for me, when I went from, uh, from preaching every Sunday for 11 months here uh, as the interim and then stopped and started teaching like every six weeks and then went 12 weeks, I, I feel like a traveling evangelist or something. Like, like I'm standing here, I'm like, this is weird. I'm not, what do I do with my hands? Um, it, it's a strange, it's a strange phenomenon. Like there was a moment in time this week as I was preparing and I was studying where I thought, did I forget how to preach? Like I'm used to hanging out with teenagers now where I teach for like 20 minutes and I sit down. So I'm just going to sit if that's a, just kidding, I'm not going to sit. Um, like I, I, I really thought, I was like, did I, for, did I forget how to, words are hard. Um, and so uh, there was a moment in time where I printed out my sermon and I thought, oh no. I didn't forget how to preach. I might be too long-winded. There's so many pages here. Uh, and so if I go long, deal with it. Uh, it'll be all right. Uh, so this morning, if you've been following along with us, we're going to be uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to kick off chapter 2. We're going to walk through the first nine verses this morning. And so over the past couple weeks, uh, Mike has walked through these, this, this first chapter into where we're at today in chapter 2. And as he's done that, he's walked through uh, where Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth. And he lays out this foundation, right? He begins, he greets them, uh, as is typical with Paul in chapter 1, where he lays out his, uh, his typical greeting. Uh, and then he gives thanksgiving for the church uh, and all the things he loves about the people there. Uh, and then he lays out where Mike walked through last week which is where he talks about Christ being the wisdom and the power of God. And so he lays out this foundation where he says, Christ is the, is the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Right? That this idea that the crucifixion and Jesus in himself is a strange thing to people who do not know they need Jesus. Jesus is this iconic figure in history, but yet there's somehow this battle that wages back and forth for those who are perishing who do not have a faith in Jesus. Where... It's folly. It's weird. Like, think about it. Society right now looks at the majority of Christians, the secular world looks at the Christian church and says, they're all crazy. They're hate-filled. They're bigots. They're backwards morally. Like, there's everything that can be said about us. Where The cross has truly portrayed itself now as folly to those who are perishing because we stand in opposition against everything of the world. Because that's what the church is. Jesus told us that would be what the church is. Jesus told us that He Himself would be in opposition to the things of the world and that Jesus himself told us, right? He tells the disciples, they will persecute you because they have persecuted me. And so he lays out this foundation where we understand that Jesus is the only power and the only wisdom that really resounds true in all of the world. It's the only deep wisdom that we can understand and grapple and get a hold of and it only comes to us by the Spirit of God. And so this morning, we're going to kind of finish off here where uh, Paul is laying this foundation where he's about to, uh, starting probably next week with Mike, where he's going to start begin laying out the issues that are happening in the Corinth church and how they apply to us as a church. 
Right? Not just how they apply to Mountain View Church, but how they apply to Murphy First Baptist and Andrews First Baptist and Murphy First United Methodist and the First Baptist Church of Southeast Istanbul, Turkey. You know, like wherever across the globe that the church is located, these things apply to the church. Because the church is not one collective building, it is a body that goes across the world. It's a body that worships Jesus Christ. And so this is going to be what he's going to lay out. And so this morning we're going to finish up some of that groundwork. And so if you uh, you got your Bible, it's going to be in chapter 2. And so uh, before I dive in, I, you know, there's this moment here where, where Paul is going to lay out how all of us come to faith. And whether you uh, have been a Christian for 50 years or 5 years or 5 months or 5 minutes, you had a moment in time where you were humble before God. Whether you realized it or not, there was a moment in time that if you came to faith in Jesus, that you had a moment where you had to break and submit yourself to God and understand where you stood in opposition to God Himself. Where you stood in your own sin. There's a moment of humility where you, where you have to recognize that you need a Savior. Right? There's this moment here where Paul's going to kind of lay out for us where he's going to say, you get to... Like, you and I come to faith in the same way. Our stories are different, but we all have a focal point where we come to faith in the same moment. Right? Where we have to look at each other and say, you and I are no different. Right? The greatest pastor that's ever lived is no different than the average parishioner in the church. Because we all came to the cross. Sinners. We all submitted ourselves to God as sinners. We're all the same. Under the law, we've lived under the weight and the curse of sin. We've all submitted ourselves to God in the same way, in the fact that we came to the cross as sinners. Whether you realized it before that moment or not, we've all come to the cross as sinners. Right? It reminds me of, uh, for anybody who ever played any Little League sport whatsoever, there's that moment in time where you're like, but they're bigger, faster, stronger, whatever. And your parents say to you, well, they put their pants on the same way that you do. Anybody ever heard that? Now, um, I always thought, hey, this is just a side note. I always thought that was a weird phrase. How do you know how I put my pants on? How do you know they put their pants on? What if they are weird and lay on their back on the bed and put their feet in their pants and then in one motion stand up and pull it up? Not that I've ever done that when my pants got too tight. Never. Never. Y'all think sometimes I wear skinny jeans. Actually, I'm wearing normal jeans. <laughs> I just got big legs. <laughs> right? Like, there's that moment where, right? Or you've heard the phrase that everybody, like, puts their pants on the same way, one leg at a time. But I remember when I was a freshman in high school, uh, I, I started wrestling. I'd never wrestled growing up to that point. Like, I got to my freshman year of high school, and honestly, I thought wrestling was weird. Because the people I knew who wrestled were unusual guys. A lot of them were just weird dudes. And there was this moment where I was like, nothing seems appealing whatsoever about wearing spandex. Like, I don't want to wear spandex short overalls. You know, like, I don't want to wear spandex short overalls. Uh, but my freshman year, I cared more about fuzzy letters on my jacket. Right? Because I thought, the more letters I have, the more ladies I have. Right? Like, there's a moment where I thought, if I have lots of letters on my jacket, they're going to think I'm a superior athlete, and they will, they will find me attractive. Um, which, turns out, my wife does not care what my letterman jacket looks like, because my mom gave it to me a couple years ago, and I pulled it out, and I was like, look at this, and she was like, you going to sell it, or trash it, or what are you going to do with it? 
I'm keeping it for my kids to see that their dad was once skinny and athletic. Thank you very much. So I started wrestling. Yeah, my, my freshman year of high school, I started wrestling. I started about a quarter of the way through the season. Uh, and it all started with the wrestling coach saw me at a meet uh, where I was there watching some of my buddies wrestle. And he said, how much you weigh? Which is a weird start to the conversation in itself. But when you wrestle, it's not a weird conversation. Like, that's just how everyone like, how much you weigh? Um, and so I said, 140 pounds. I know that's a little shocking for some of you. Don't, don't gasp. But yes, my freshman year of high school, I weighed 140 pounds. Lean, mean, pasty fighting machine. Uh, and uh, and I, he said, perfect. We have an open varsity 140-pound spot. It'll be yours if you come to practice. All you have to do is show up. I was like, all right, I'm down with that. I showed up on the first day of practice. I thought, these guys are all nuts. Like, they're crazy. Why would anybody do this to themselves? But there was also this moment in time where I was kind of like, all right. I kind of like this nuts thing here. Like, I'm on this level of crazy. And so I loved it. I started wrestling, and my freshman year, the coach looked at me and said, here's the deal. Every time we go on the mat and we don't have a 140-pound wrestler, we give the other team six points. If you go out there and you get pinned, we still give them six points. But if you go out there and do anything other than get pinned, we give them less than six points. That's math. That's less points for the other team. That means potential more points for you. And so the coach said, all I'm asking you to do is not get pinned. That's all you have to do. Like, you don't have to win. Just don't get pinned. He's like, you just go out there, wrestle your best, and stay off your back. That's all you got to do. And so I did. And I think my freshman record was like 7-39. and 39. Um, It was bad. It was really bad. Uh, and I probably took at least two forfeits. <laughs> so I really only won five matches, and that was sheer luck. Um, <laughs> But by the time I got to my senior year, I'd gotten decent at wrestling. And I remember at the end of the season, a couple weeks left, the coach saying, all right, practice is over. It's been two hours of practice. And he said, everybody line up. 12 sprints. So practice ends, we run 12 sprints. And I was like, that's a lot of sprints. This is not fun. So then the next day he said, 14. And I was like, that's, that's two more than yesterday. That's awesome math. And two more is not positive in this regard. And then the next day it was 16 then 18, and then 20, until three days before the state wrestling tournament, we were running 40 sprints at the end of practice, after two hours. Yeah, it's right. You feel like you're going to die. People are like throwing up in trash cans, laying on the floor in puddles of sweat afterwards, like... <laughs> it was awful, and I thought, why are we doing this? And he just looked at us, and our coach looked at us and said, what you don't realize is that your core... You were the same as the guy across from you. And some of you have lost three and four times to the same guy all year. And you're going to see that person in the state tournament. You're going to meet them on the biggest stage in the state of Georgia. You're going to look them face to face in the eye. And you're going to have to wrestle them one more time. The difference is, is that the two of you, you're both athletes. You're both competing. You both have the same goal in mind. The other question is, who's working harder? Who's striving more? Who's fighting more? Because they're not running 40 sprints after practice. And honestly, I thought, Coach, you're crazy. That guy pinned me four times this year. Not going to be any different this time around. But then we get to the state tournament. And these guys who've been sucking weight, trying to stay on weight, not running, not doing the extra, just trying to get there to the biggest stage, we outworked them. And guys are winning matches against people that they never were supposed to beat. 
it wasn't until that moment that I understood that at our core, we are all very, very similar people. We all start with the same foundation. Every rest of the stuff on the map starts at the same weight as each other. Right? They're the same weight. Most of them are pretty close in size. They're pretty equal just by nature. It's a matter of who learns and who fights. And so today, we're going to see from the text here that we all start at equal ground. The difference is the background work. Now this is where the analogy kind of falls apart here because for us it was me doing the background work of running the sprints. For us in Jesus, it's that Jesus did the background work on the cross. And that's what Paul's going to echo. So if you got your Bible this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says this, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of, uh, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. I'll pray with we'll God. God, we ask this morning, as we come into Your Word, that You teach us and show us what it means to understand the simple Gospel. What it means to understand that there's no need for us to have lofty words or speech, but wisdom that solely comes from your word and solely comes from your spirit. One that's intertwined with who you are and everything in your character, and that it conforms us and molds us and sends us out as messengers of hope. Father, we love you. We pray these things in your name. And so as you see here, Paul is walking through this as he's writing this letter to the Corinth church. He's saying to the Corinthians there, you start with this level of foundation of understanding that you are in sin. You don't stay there. There's a moving and a striving forward. And what we're going to see is that, as Paul is echoing here, that all of Scripture, all of the text, all of the Bible, everything Old Testament and New Testament comes together and converges upon us to guide us and shape us and mold us. Like 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's what he's wrapping his brain around here. And so he's going to break this down for us and show us what it means. So he says this, right? He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you in testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Right? We start with this base level, this foundational ground that you and I are sinners. And that apart from God, we can't save ourselves. I know often we want to think that. Often we want to think that I have enough righteousness or good works or activities to bring me to Jesus and present myself good and clean. And then he'll say, all right, perfect, and stamp us. Right, that's what's subtly being taught in the American church is this idea that you clean yourself up, polish yourself, come to Jesus, he'll give you the stamp of approval, then you're good. It's not how it works. The way it works is that Jesus, Jesus picks you up from the muck and the mire and the dust and he cleans you off and he builds you up and then he sends you out. He equips you. Right as Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And the sooner we can wrap our brains around the fact that we bring nothing to the table, but God loved us enough in our sin to send Jesus, the quicker we can lay this foundational groundwork that we have to have in order for us to move forward. And so that's our starting point. 
is that humility is the starting point for every aspect of gospel living. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. Humility is the starting point for every aspect of gospel living. Because I've, I've learned a, a little secret here in my short 32 years of life. The first one is, I'm not eloquent. I don't know if I've ever presented that to you. But I'm not a man of eloquence. Right? Like, I don't have a big lofty education. Uh, I don't speak well. I don't even know if that's the right sentence structure. Speak good, speak well, something like that. Right? Grammar. Okay, I, I know I'm not eloquent. I, I read a joke last night that made me laugh. The guy said, my roommate's an idiot. I introduced him to my friends and he said, what's up, guys? And I said, hey, they're from London. He said, oh, sorry. How art thou? <laughs> I'm not eloquent. That's me. Where I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. Hi. No, they're from London. They speak English too, moron. Right? Like, I've never been an eloquent speaker. I, this is not me. Like, yeah, I grew up in North Georgia and in a redneck town, right? My high school, before Friday Night Football games, we played Hick Town, the country song, before, while we were warming up, okay? Right? My high school was next to a dairy farm. Woo-woo! Kegel's Dairy, Canton, Georgia. Booyah! Right? We were, our mascot should have been the cow. That would have been so good if we were like the heifers. Right? When my, when my, the, when my high school opened, the first home football game, the opponent's banner said, all dirt roads lead to Sequoia. <laughs> Which is the name of my high school. All dirt roads. Yeah. Right? I've never been eloquent. Right? Like, if we're honest, nobody in my family really has a, a full college education unless they got it later in life. I went to school, and you know what I studied in college? Art. Why? Because I could paint things and draw things pretty decently, uh, and I thought I could get away with not taking math. Then those jerks at college told me that one of my core classes was algebra. I was angry. I was like, I took three years of that in high school. Why do I need a fourth one? I was also supposed to take Spanish, apparently, but I exempted out of it. How? I don't know, because I legitimately Christmas tree the uh, exemption exam for the Spanish portion. And <laughs> somehow passed. That was all on the Lord. <laughs> I went for two years and I quit because I was like, I don't want to teach art. I want to preach Jesus to middle school and high school students. That's what I want to do. I don't want to teach art. And then the comedy is, all the things you see around this building that have printed words on them, I make on my computer. Like I've never been eloquent. So that's the first thing. The second thing I understand is this, is that God doesn't need your eloquence, your education, nor is he impressed by it or hindered by the lack of it. Right? Like, God doesn't need your college education. He's not impressed by it, and he's not hindered by your lack of it. Or he doesn't need anything special. Why? Why? Well, because your college education is a gift from him. He doesn't need it back. He gives it to some people because he gives it to them. He doesn't give it to others because he doesn't. He's God. He gets to do that. He's sovereign. And that's not to say that education isn't important. Because trust me, if I could go back to school, but I'd love to have that piece of paper. Did y'all know that when, before I came to Mountain View, I applied at 60 different churches for a role as a student pastor. Probably 45 to 50 of them never, ever even emailed me back about my resume. Another 10 promptly emailed as soon as I sent in my resume and basically said, sorry, you don't have any education we're looking for. We're not even going to look at your resume. 
another couple emailed back and basically said over a few questions like, hey, well, we're glad with your experience, but still your lack of education is a problem for us, and so we won't move forward. And I'd love to have that piece of paper. I'd love to be able to say I studied and I learned these things and I, and I was trained by professionals. But the truth of the matter is this. Theology does not, it's not a textbook. The Bible is not some magical textbook that you just soak in all the, the knowledge of and that it makes you smarter. And by your own intellect, you can preach Jesus better. No, the Bible isn't a textbook. And this is living and active. Read John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Paul tells us this is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, devised bone and marrow. It's not a textbook. It's also not a mirror. Like it shows us our sin, but unlike a mirror, this fixes our sin too. Right? If it simply just showed us our sin, it'd be like taking a mirror and be like, man, I got a huge zit on my nose. <laughs> Still there. Right? No, like this shows us our sin, it points us out, and then it fixes our sin. It gives us everything necessary. That's what that passage in 2 Timothy means. This scripture gives us everything necessary to serve God. Everything necessary to grow in the Lord. And so humility is our starting point. The second thing we see is this, is that level two is for us to know nothing except Jesus Christ crucified. That's what Paul says next where he says, I do not come proclaiming to you testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message <coughs> were not plausible, implausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Right? He says he makes it simple here. He says, I chose to know nothing but Jesus, Him crucified. It's this idea of the simple gospel. Man, if we just held fast to the simple gospel as a church, so many things would be easier for us to understand. But so often we get bent out of shape about minor doctrinal differences that we want to close our hands around. We want to fight people over. And Paul says, I didn't come with all this lofty wisdom. I didn't come giving you anything big other than the simple gospel of Jesus and Him crucified. This is a big deal because if you study Paul's life, you understand that Paul says, and he's a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew. He lays out his biblical lineage all the way back to the 12 tribes. Then he says on top of that, man, to the law, I was a Pharisee, which means... He studied the law as a child. He memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. Right? Like, I don't know if you try to read Leviticus, but memorize Leviticus. All of that sounds unappealing. Paul did it. Then if he's a Pharisee, that means he walked through this rabbinical training. He followed after a rabbi. He served in a rabbinical role as a rabbi teaching and preaching the Old Testament law and enforcing it to his people. And to be a Pharisee, a Pharisee is someone who made it all the way through that. And then in the latter part of their ministerial career, were so sharp, so brilliant, so wise when it came to the scripture and the laws of Moses that he was able to act both as theological teacher and as judge and jury. 
Right? That's, that's what the Pharisees do. We see that in the trial of Jesus, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together to put Jesus on trial and find him guilty. Paul knew that. There's some scholars who believe that as Paul went to temples, he would wear his rabbinical robes so that they would allow him in to preach and teach so that he could expound upon who Jesus was. But he tells the Corinthian church that he comes into their presence with nothing except Jesus and him crucified. He throws all of those years and years of training and memorization. He says, shift that aside for just a moment. The most important matter is Jesus and Him crucified. Man, if we just, if we just dove into that, could we understand and believe and let that affect us for just a minute without getting bent up on things like what translation of the Bible we use, on whether we sprinkle people or dump people in baptism, on whether or not you can wear a hat in church, whether or not you need to wear a tie every Sunday, whether or not we have a choir or a band, whether we have the lights on or the lights off, whether we have stage lights or no stage lights. If we can just push that aside and focus on the greater truth, and it's fine to have an opinion on those. We have an opinion on those. You can read it. Go to our website. There's a whole doctrinal statement of what we believe and hold fast to. When it comes to baptism, we're dunkers. Right? You gotta get you fully under the water. Make sure you're clean. But that doesn't mean that I'm gonna look down at somebody who's like, well, I became a believer in prison and my baptism was somebody spit on a washcloth and smacked me in the forehead with it. Done. Great. Come on in, brother. Welcome to the family. Right? Because we believe in Jesus and Him crucified. We can have an opinion on the other stuff, but I promise you, it does not matter if you read Romans 10, 9, as thou, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Or if you read it, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It does not matter if you read that in the King James, the ESV, the NIV, the New King James. CSB, I don't know, whatever random translation, NASB, it does not matter which translation it comes from because if you're more concerned with that, then you've missed the point of the passage. That if you believe with your heart, you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, will be saved. That's what's important. The truth, the doctrinal weightiness of it, that's what's important. That's what Paul says. There's nothing among you except Jesus and Him crucified. Then he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Right, this is the third thing if you're a note taker. We as believers are to continually be in awe and humility and press forward with gospel work. Right, Paul uses that phrase, in fear and trembling, three times in his letters in the New Testament. He uses it here in 1 Corinthians, he uses it in 2 Corinthians, and most famously he uses it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And so what we see is that that word in the Greek really means to press on or bring to fruition when he says to work out in fear and trembling. This idea that we're bringing it to fruition. And so really, what Paul's saying here is he's saying, when I came in weakness and fear and trembling, he's saying, no matter what training I've had, no matter what high and lofty things I've learned in my life, I am not strong enough, nor am I good enough to bring this gospel message of hope with my own power. But, in all and adoration of the Lord, I deliver it to you. Much fear and trembling. Fear 
Because God is holy and righteous and He may have no part in sin. All in adoration for who He is as the sovereign ruler of the universe who made everything by His hands. Paul says, I bring this message to you knowing that I am my own power. I can't deliver it. And so my weakness and in fear and trembling under Almighty God, I deliver this gospel message to you. He carries and understands the heavy weight of gospel truth. And that word gospel just simply means the good news. He understands the weight of the good news. The fact that we throw the gospel message around so often, but we don't fully understand how heavy it is. That it is both simple and but it is powerful. That it saves sinners. It is so simple that it is, it is easy to understand in this term. God saves sinners despite our sin. But it is powerful enough for us to understand in this term. God saves sinners despite our sin. It's the weight of it. So often, we operate like what is said at everyone's funeral is truth. You know what I'm talking about? When you go to a funeral with somebody that you've known for a long time and everybody gets up to speak and they're like, they were just the best person. They loved God. They served everybody they know. And you sit in the back, in the back going, what? I saw that guy three weeks ago. He was in a bar fight. You know, like, so often we live this mindset that everything that's ever said at somebody's funeral is the truth, right? And what I mean by that is for us understanding that there are there are people around us that, that believe they're followers of Jesus because they said a prayer at seven years old and they've never followed after him since. And when they die, somebody will stand in front of a group of people in a room like this and say, they were great. They loved God. They used to go to church. They said a prayer when they were a kid. Now they're saved. Now they're with Jesus. And you're going, nothing in their life reflected that. When instead we should be living our mindset knowing that everybody has a chance and opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in the community and world we live in. Because that's the reality. Jesus is out there. He is everywhere. You can see it all over TV. Every, like, there's a component of Jesus. Now a lot of that is jacked up and twisted and bent and shaped in different ways. But anybody can wake up today in the United States of America and probably find a church within 10 to 15 minutes drive of their house. The gospel is there. The problem is the people sitting in the church today across the country are not mobilizing themselves outside of the church. And i got to confess, I'm just as guilty. i got to confess that as a pastor, so often I hide behind that title where people want to have conversations about Jesus with me because they know what I do for a living. They know that I serve the gospel. They know that my job is as an associate pastor here at Mountain View Church. And I don't ever enter into conversations with people just to try to get there to talk about Jesus. I fail at it. In the most tiny, simple ways. I do this. Y'all know we have band practice here every Thursday night. And usually on Sunday mornings, I'm over here singing with the worship team. When we finish band practice, everybody in the worship team knows exactly what happens when band practice is over. We lock the building, and where do I go? every Thursday because somewhere deep down inside me I hate myself. You know? <laughs> I'm a glutton for punishment but I like Taco Bell. I'm a sucker for nacho fries. It's to the point now when I go through Taco Bell there's one of three people working the window and all three of them know that I like Baja Blast Zero and that I don't take any sauce with my food. Right? Like why can't I engage them with the gospel? Because I'm a coward. 
You ever heard of Penn and Teller? Some of the young folks are like, I don't know what that is. But some of the older folks, you know Penn and Teller? So they're a group of mag uh, magicians that have, I think they still have a Las Vegas show. Probably. Um, really goofy, funny guys. Penn, uh, Penn Gillette, one of the two guys, super hardcore atheist. Super hardcore atheist. But he said this, and I thought this was so interesting. This is a direct quote from him. He said, I've always said that people don't respect people who don't share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that's not really worth telling them this because it would make things socially awkward. An atheist who thinks people shouldn't proselytize and who said just leave me alone and keep religion to yourself is ridiculous. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point in time where I'd tackle you. And this is more important than that. Here's an avowed atheist saying, man, I have no respect for Christians who don't share their faith. Because if they think they have eternal life and the keys to it, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share that? And the analogy gives us, there's a truck bearing down, and if you don't believe it's there, there's a point in time where I'm just going to tackle you because you're going to get hit by the truck. So the lesson for today is some of you need to go tackle your coworkers. <laughs> Maybe not physically, but spiritually. Like Some of you need to have difficult conversations because you know people you work with are struggling with addiction, they're struggling with depression, and they're on the verge of things in their life that they cannot step back from. You have eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. You're not sharing. It should weigh heavy on us. It should press down on us. We have the hope of the gospel. We're not doing anything with it. That's what he says. And he says, In weakness and in fear and much trembling under this weight, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, right? The gospel is folly. The cross is folly to those who are perishing. But in the demonstration of the Spirit and the power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Right? The fourth thing we see is that having this foundation of faith matters because we must discern what is spirit and what is made of man. Paul says that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then he says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And he says, man-made wisdom is doomed to pass away. The people who want to share Wisdom of earthly nature will pass away and the wisdom will be lost in some regards. We've seen this. We put our weight in people and fads way too much. Anybody over the age of like 15 right now might remember when the Atkins diet was like the best thing in the world. Right? Everybody, just eat meat, do the Atkins diet, and you all get skinny. And then like 10 years later, doctor's like, oh, time out. Don't do that. You'll have a heart attack. Right? Just... That's too much protein. Bad idea. Then it went to the phase where it's like, everybody needs to go vegan. Which, vegan is just a Cherokee Indian word for poor hunter. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all I'm saying is in the last two years, there's been a recall on lettuce and people have got E. coli from salads and nobody once got E. coli from eating a pound of bacon. <laughs> I'm fine. I eat bacon all the time. <laughs> Button my jacket. <laughs> right? We, we 
follow fads and teachers all the time. Right? We get earthly wisdom from people. And we do this on the same time, not to get political, but we do this with politics too. We put our faith and understanding and wisdom that somebody we vote on will somehow miraculously save our country, save our county, save our city, save whatever. When the reality is that everyone's a sinner and say, ain't nobody going to save anybody. Right? Like you can't put your faith in wisdom because rulers will pass away. Right? You can put your faith in a president if you want to, but they've got four years at most. Right? Eight years if they get reelected. In the grand scheme of eternity, eight years is not a long time to change everything in human history. We've seen that because we've gone to ebbs and flows where whole societies are at the top of their game and crushed. Paul understands this. Right? Like Paul has a beautiful hindsight of being able to look back at eternity and be like, <laughs> remember when Rome was like the biggest thing in the world and I was a prisoner of them? Rome's doing great now. It's a small city in a country called Italy and all of its buildings are crumbled. Right? You can't put your faith in things of this world. In earthly, man-made wisdom and understanding because fads come and go and rulers come and go and it all changes, but one thing does not change and that is the wisdom that passes all understanding that comes from the Scripture and the Word of God. And he says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages of all glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they did, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. So we're going to kind of wrap up in just a minute. And we're going to close with this, understanding this. Man, as we, as we wrap up, we understand that this foundation of understanding this simple gospel and the weight of it and the power of it and the wisdom that comes solely behind understanding the cross, Jesus crucified, and applying that simple gospel to our life, sharing that simple gospel, but it requires a response. And we do two things in the American church. We let our response, response be too often, nothing. We come to church, man, that was a great Sunday. We go home. We don't think about anything that was said. We don't think about the songs we sang. We don't think about the truth we sat under and were immersed in until we show back up the next Sunday. Or, and I've been guilty of the second one here, I think back on Sunday morning and I think, man, was that a good Sunday? Do we have a good, do we have a good church service? I don't know. Didn't see why people really responded. And there wasn't a whole lot of people lifting their hands up when they were singing. Nobody really came forward to the altar at the end of the service. And I look for an emotional response. So often we judge our Christianity by, was there an emotional response? And certainly there are times when God stirs us to emotions. Emotions are natural. He's given us those, and that's good. Man, and may we be moved so much that it stirs in our emotions. But on the same token, and that's not how we gauge whether or not it was a good Sunday. It was a good Sunday because we came and we sat in the church, because we grew together as a body. Right? We, we balance these things out by saying this. Like, when we see folks responding with hand, hands raised, what makes others respond? Like, here's a better idea than just understanding people's hands raised or tears streaming down people's face or altars full of bodies. Do we preach the Bible in its proper context? Like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, when it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved as a worker who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
Did we sing to God His praise because He requires us of that? Like it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did we earnestly pray like we meant it, or did we just pray as a filler to get between the band coming down and the pastor coming up? Like it tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Did we devote ourselves to reading from the Word? Like it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Well, this week, will we gather outside of the walls regularly to encourage one another? Like it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47, when he says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together and with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then last week, did, did we break the bread and take the cup in remembrance of Him? Like it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29, when he says... For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. It's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's how we judge it was a good Sunday. Did we hear from the word? Did we sing the songs to glorify God? Not did we raise our hands. Not did we flood the altar with people. Not did we weep and cry, but did we hear the truth preached? Did we sing the truth? Do we understand the truth? Do we take in the communion of truth? Have we clouded and wrapped ourselves in the gospel of Jesus? That's how we judge if it's a good Sunday. So the worship team is going to come forward. And as they do, and I want to encourage you. It's the last Sunday of the month, and so we will take part in communion this morning. So as we do that, uh, and the folks come up, we're going to be serving. I want to remind you what you just said in that passage. We're going to, we're going to walk through that text. Um, uh, in the next, well, who knows, a long time from now. But when we wrap up this book in 1 Corinthians, we're going to walk through that text. And Paul says something very particular there that's not mentioned any other time that he can be mentioned. Right? It's often said, do this in remembrance of Jesus. That these represent the body and the blood of Jesus. But something that Paul echoes here, I want us to remember and be reminded of today, is that he says, to take a moment, right, to reflect upon yourself before you take part in communion. He said those who do it in an unworthy manner, they drink judgment upon themselves. So this morning, before you come up here, the way we do it at Mountain View is you take a little piece of bread, you dip it in the juice, you go back to your seats as you eat it. Before you come up to this morning and take part in that, what, if you're not a believer, don't take part in this. This is something that is in remembrance for believers. If you're not a believer, instead, take Jesus. Come talk to myself. Come talk to Mike. And we'll guide you through what it means to be a follower of Christ. What it means to come to salvation in Jesus. If you are a believer, take a moment. 
you need to forgive somebody, forgive somebody. If you need to be forgiven, ask the Lord for forgiveness. If you need to clear your heart and mind, do that. And then come up. When you're ready, I'll pray.